Children's Church, you can be dismissed at this time. Thank you, Zach and Randy. Thank you, Dr. Carver. <laughs> yes, you do. Yes, you do. Junior, if you don't mind pulling that up on the screen for me, partner, I appreciate that. So, um, recently we've had the opportunity last month, uh, again, a lot, of, a lot of travel, and we've got to go to a couple of conferences, and, and I appreciate those conferences because it allows me opportunity to get together with other pastors and uh, interacting with, with other pastors. You kind of get a feel for what's going on uh, around the world uh, and what uh, the Spirit of God is saying to the churches and sort of different themes that each church is wrestling through. And you find that there's a lot of commonality, as you would expect. In the universal body of Christ, we are facing the same battles in this world. One of the things that seems to be growing, resurging, and it's nothing new, it's actually what's happened since the very beginning of time. The first cosmic warfare, if you will, was over, did God really say? Did God really say? Did He really mean that? Is that what He meant, or are you just misinterpreting? That was the scheme of Satan from day one, and let me warn you, church, it's still Satan's scheme today. But what disturbs me as a pastor is when I see good, God-fearing people still embracing the lies of the enemy in areas that we should not be embracing the lies of the enemy. It's amazing how we don't even think that what we say, what comes out of our mouth, the things that we do by the way we live, tells the world around us who we are and what we believe. You and I act on what we believe. We put action to our belief system. Again, if you think it's going to be cold this morning, and you knew it was going to be cold, and you believed it was going to be cold, you put on a jacket. Now, if you weren't made aware of that, you may have came out today in shorts and t-shirts. You would have paid for that this morning by the time you got to that cold seat. Woo-hoo! I need to thank the man for who invented those, those bun warmers. That's nice. Isn't that a good feature? Anyway, when they were. But guys, we act out what we believe. And yet, it's amazing when we think about certain key subjects that are facing our world today, and yet even people within the church do not have a biblical worldview when it comes to thinking about these subjects. I was uh, thankful... Uh, you guys know Dr. Mel Winstead, a good friend of mine. He had sent me an email uh, last week and said, I want you to review this chapter. He is submitting a chapter for a book that he is composing uh, with a lot of theologians around the globe. It's a dedication book to Dr. Richard Land. Many of you know who Dr. Richard Land is. Uh, he is president of Southern Seminary in Charlotte. He was also, uh, you've seen him probably on television a lot of times. He's one of the ethics guys that a lot of times the channels will bring in uh, to chime in on biblical ethics and so forth. So my friend uh, Mayo is, is dedicating this book, and so he's, he's collaborating with a lot of others and putting together these chapters. He says, Jeremy, I want you to review the chapter that I've written. And so as I begin to read Mayo's writing, it's uh, uh, again on the authority of Scripture, and he's specifically focusing on two relevant areas today. He's focusing on the subject of abortion. He's focusing on uh, the area of critical race theory. And he's focusing on the area of homosexuality. And these are all three things that are flooding our world today. When you go out into the streets, when you turn on the news, when you listen to anything, it's, this is what the world is bombarded with. But it amazes me how many Christians claim Again, to be followers of Christ, and yet do not hold to a biblical worldview when thinking through these subjects. They think, perhaps, as I heard one Christian lady say to me once, abortion is God's mercy. 
She believed that. She really believed that that was God's mercy, allowing these kids not grow up in a cruel home, in a cruel world, and therefore it's God's mercy that they're aborted. As a homosexual friend, and I will call him that because he's an ongoing witness and we continue to have dialogue, often debate, um, more so probably than dialogue, but still desire to reach him for Christ. But he claims to know Christ. He works in an Episcopalian church. He's doing the Lord's work and believes that that's how God made him. How is it someone has that mindset yet claiming to stand on the authority of Scripture? There's there's something wrong in these thoughts. And yet the church will stand out and go in marches with the BLM movement. Not understanding that the whole point of, of these, these racist ideas, the CRT movement is all about destroying the nuclear home, getting rid of fathers. I mean, if you understand their worldview and what they're espousing, it's, it may sound good on uh, equal footing for all. That sounds, sounds halfway decent, doesn't it? Guys, we need to think biblically to these subjects. If we're going to wrestle through the questions and the concerns of life, we need a strong biblical worldview. And it's not going to come through man's ideas. It's going to come through, thus saith the Lord. God is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the one who has written the handbook, if you will, to all of life. And when it comes to these subjects, by the way, I don't want to move on past these without giving you at least a halfway answer this morning uh, and as we develop the underlying uh, foundation to give you the full answers, uh, let me just throw these out at you. We know that abortion is wrong because we are creating the image of God in your mother's womb when you were knit together. God knew you. He formed you. Every life is a life that carries value. Personhood begins at conception not at a certain time period after birth. When it comes to homosexuality, God says it's an abomination, it's a sin. Now, let's be real clear. They have the same problem you have, that I have. We're sinners. Just because your struggle isn't homosexuality, I promise you, you have a struggle that is a result of the fall of Adam. Sexual sin is sexual sins. Whether it be you struggle with pornography, whether it be you struggle with immorality, whether you struggle with adultery, homosexuality, these are sexual sins. Now there are consequences when it comes to sins that can carry more weight. If you go out and shoot a homeless man or you go out and shoot the president, there will be consequences that will differ. But don't miss the point. Taking a man's life is wrong. It's sin. It's murder. Though man may see it a certain way, God does not. God looks upon the heart of man. But the consequences of sin is different. You tell a lie to your mom and daddy, I didn't take that cookie may not be as severe a punishment as you telling your boss, I didn't take that money. But lying is a sin. When it comes to race, when we understand a biblical worldview, which by the way, can I encourage you, you guys are missing out. If you're not coming to Dr. Carver's Sunday school class, and I know you're not because I sat in here, you need to get here. This is exactly where the Spirit of God had us this morning. It has had us on this subject for a while. And understanding where the races came from, understanding that at the Tower of Babel when, when uh, languages, that's the birth of languages, that's what separated people. Was God allowing the confusing of the languages to disperse because they were, in disobedient, uh, they, they were disobedient to what God had told them. They were not submitting and yielding to the authority of God. Instead, were setting themselves up 
to do what they saw was right and what they saw was fit. Sound familiar? On whose authority are you living? Are you the master of your own ship? Who are you listening to when it comes to the worldview issues of life? Because by the way, the Scriptures tell me when it comes to race, Christ settled that division at the cross. When He looks at the Jews and the Gentiles, He says there's therefore no separation. When it comes to that, that wall of separation that's been torn down between Jew and Gentile. When it comes to role and responsibility within a home, see, CRT seeks to destroy the home through what we call egalitarian views. Egalitarian view is a view that's still trying to make its way back into the church. Guys, this is the same junk that the feminist movement brought into to our society some time ago. Now ladies, please hear me on this one loud and clear. Has God created you? Do you have the value that your husband has? You better believe it. You are equal in the eyes of God. But let's be loud and clear, men. You're not birthing children. So get it out of your head. And yet we laugh at that, but that's the simplistic fact that we somehow have lost our way in this world and society today. We can't even make that sense. Is that a guy or is that a girl? Can they have a baby? I don't know. I mean, we have gone off the rails. God has designed you in a special way and He's given you unique roles and responsibilities. Don't blur those lines. Submit to that authority. Embrace that. That is a God-given honor to fulfill your role. But yet we see man being uh, uh, torn down in his masculinity. We see women seeking to uh, uh, achieve status and, and, and stature without... Daring to hear, what does God desire of you to do? Where is your role in the eyes of God? And we need to understand this view of egalitarianism versus complementarianism because it's at the very heart of the authority of who God is. When God sent His Son into the world, did the Son say, no, I'm not, uh, you can go. I'm just as important as you are. I'm God too. And then the Holy Spirit stepped in and said, well, I don't know why y'all are fighting because I can do it. Can you imagine the chaos that would have ensued? No, of course not, because it's God, and God is perfect in union. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But guys, do you not see what God has given us in the example? God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The Son was willing to come. And throughout the ministry of Christ, you hear it over and over, and you read it in the pages, He was not here to do His will. He submitted to the will of the Father. And dare not, dare not assault the integrity of the Word of God and the authority of God's Word dare not and, and assault the equality of Christ and who He is in His character and His nature. He is fully God and fully man. But He submitted to the will of the Father. Oh, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. He knew the cross was coming. Nevertheless, not my will be done, thy will be done. There's a submission even within the Godhead. The Holy Spirit's purpose is to draw you to Christ. He doesn't make light of himself. That's why we're not charismatic. This is why I have a problem with the charismatic movement. The charismatic movement is all about Holy Ghost this, Holy Ghost that, Holy Ghost this. It draws attention to, to himself if that's the Holy Ghost that's truly present. That's not the function of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's purpose and function is to draw you to Christ, is to pull you to Christ, is to bring conviction, to submit to the will of the Father through Christ in the Word of God. When, whenever the Spirit of God moves upon my heart, I can either quench that Spirit, grieve that Spirit, or I can be submissive to Him. And so it's important that we understand where is our worldview coming from on issues of life? And we talk out of both sides of our mouth, I'm afraid, because we are saying we believe this book is authoritative, but we're not living that this book is authoritative in our life. And we wonder why the world's upside down. So I want to talk to us today, and I say us because this is a reminder for all of us as believers in Christ 
to go back to the foundation of our faith. How are you seeing the world today? Are you seeing it through the world of modern science? Are you seeing the world today through philosophy? Are you seeing the world today through biblical authority? We need to return to the foot of the cross. We need to return to put on the gospel lens to see the world the way God intended for us to see it. And the only way you and I will see the world the way that we're supposed to see it is through the eyes of God. And so I want to talk about on whose authority. On whose authority. That's today's sermon title. And it helps if I turn it on. Hmm. Or maybe not. Maybe it needs some batteries. Would you mind clicking to the next one for me, sir? Thank you. Good catch. Why do you choose to believe the Bible? Maybe you've been asked this question. Why do you choose to believe the Bible? We'll use my imaginary clicker. Thank you. Man, that works better than the other one. You know, some people give this answer. I believe the Bible because that's how I was raised. Guys, if that's your answer, that's a bad answer. I'm thankful you were raised that way. But that doesn't really amount to anything, does it? Maybe you were raised a Muslim. Why is that holy book wrong then? If you're going to use this as your defense argument, by the way, 1 Peter 3, 15 says, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that's within you, right? With gentleness, with meekness. So if you grew up in an Islamic country, why do you believe the Quran? Well, I believe the Quran because that's how it was raised. If that's good enough for you, that's good enough for them. we got a problem now. There's contradiction. Young people, hear me on this one. I'm thankful you're being raised in a Christian home. But you're not going to heaven on the coattails of your parents or your grandparents. You need to understand the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. You need to come to the understanding of who Christ is and what He's done for you. And you need to be willing to repent of your sin and collapse your life completely upon the cross of Calvary. You need to surrender your heart and life and believe in Christ for who He is, who He claimed to be, that it becomes your faith and that faith be lived out. Some people say, well, hey, I tried it and it changed my life. That's a little better answer, but it's still a bad answer. That, that, that's your answer today. It still falls woefully short. Let me give you an example. A uh, good little book, uh, if you want to pick up, it's called One Foundation. It's Essays on the Sufficiency of Scripture, uh, put together by John MacArthur, but features a, a, a number of uh, collaboration from various writers. Um, so maybe this is your answer. Well, let me give you an account of someone who gave such an answer. Personal transformation doesn't always point back to the truth. I know of a man who was born into a large family in the Midwest. His mother had mental problems. His father was murdered while he was still young. He went to live with his sister in Boston where he fell in with a crowd that was quite unsavory. Before long, he found himself in prison in Massachusetts. There, he met some men who told him he needed to have his life changed. They told him about a Messiah and urged him to believe and submit, but he couldn't. Then one night, he had a personal, vivid encounter with this Messiah. And he finally bowed the knee. From that moment, his entire life changed. He became a model prisoner and received an early release. He went on to become one of the most famous preachers in America 
and was, and was personally responsible for opening more than 100 houses of worship to this day. There are streets named after him in major cities across the country. Anybody want to guess what his name was? Malcolm X. His name was Malcolm X, and he eventually came to realize that his Messiah, that honorable Elijah Muhammad, was a fraud. So he abandoned the nation of Islam to become an Orthodox Muslim. And the nation of Islam had him assassinated. That encounter in his prison cell was fraudulent, and yet he based everything on it. He had an experience, and it changed his life. But at the end of that life, he knew he was wrong. Guys, experience doesn't make it true. Job's one of the best books to study on this subject, and if you go through it, you'll see Job's friends coming to him. And we, we have the insight. We see what God has said right behind the scenes. Satan's come to him, hey, you know, the only reason why he serves you is because you've given him everything. Let me touch him, and he'll, he'll blaspheme you. Nope. All right, go ahead, touch him, but you can't take his life. You know all the bad stuff that ends up happening to Job. Then his friends come to him, try to, you know, Job, you need to repent, man. There must be some sin in your life. And one of them bases it on tradition. And he uses tradition as his point of worldview, his point of argument. Well, our forefathers have said, this is the way, and therefore... And then you got another friend who, who tries to argue from experience. He says, man, I had a vision last night. An angel came to me in a dream. Job, I know you're in sin. I know you're sinning. You need to repent and get right. I know this by my experience. And then you got another young whippersnapper who's very smart, intellectual, and he comes to him and says, hey, look, logic would tell me, Job, you've messed up, you've done something wrong, you need to get right. And the problem is with all three of these views, traditional, the experience, and the logic, they're wrong. That doesn't make it true. And it's not until God speaks in the story that we get the truth. Now, we know the truth from the beginning because God has spoken. It's recorded for us, so we're able to kind of get that behind the scenes. But when God shows up on the scene, where were you, Job, when I made the air? Where were you? And so we get all these floods of questions. When God speaks, we get clarity. Guys, if there's anything to take away from that is don't depend on your tradition to guide you in your worldview. Don't rely on your experiences to be the end-all, say-all to what you know to be true. And do not allow logic, the wisdom of man, the philosophy of man, to be your say-all, end-all governing to guide you. We need to hear the voice of God. We need to hear the authoritative answer from thus saith the Lord. And we have it. And it's called the Holy Scriptures. So let's check out this answer. Vody Bachman says this. He says, why do you choose to believe the Bible? He answers the question this way. I choose to believe the Bible because it's a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. The report, they report supernatural events that took place in the fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. Thank you. That's a good answer. That's a great answer. Your Bible is trustworthy. Your Bible has withstood the test of time. It is proven. It has evidences that no other worldview can claim. It has the supporting evidence to verify those claims. When you have a truth claim, you can figure it out by doing the math. If I say 2 plus 2 is 4, you can do the math to figure that out to see if it's true or not. Now, listen, we know at the end of the day 
we take these things on faith. We're going to talk about this in this study. No promises how long this series will last. Um, we won't finish today, I promise you that. That is one promise I will keep today. I will not finish it. There you go. Simply put, the living, it's the living Word of God. That's what this book is, guys. It's the living Word of God. And we need to remind ourselves of that. Oh, if only God would speak. He has spoken. Oh, if only God would, would, would give me a, a vision. He's given a lot of visions in here. Won't you look them up and listen to them? We need to return. The Lord, help us return with a love for the Word of God. So why appeal to the Scripture as the highest authority? I mean, that's easy for you to say, preacher. Why appeal to, to this? Many are asking. Why appeal to the Bible? That, that too. Thank you, sir. I'm glad you asked that question, sir. Listen to this quote. This is good. Now, you might ask why I would begin by appealing to the Bible. To put it simply, there's no higher authority than the Bible. Let that sink in. Why would you and I as Christians appeal to the Bible? Doesn't that seem kind of, we're going to talk about it, doesn't it seem like problematic? Listen to, hang in here. To put it simply, there's no higher authority than the Bible. If I were to appeal to another authority, science, philosophy, if I were to appeal to another authority, I would be conceding the fact that there's a higher more reliable authority than God's Word. However, I'm making the argument that Scripture is the highest authority. Therefore, by definition, I cannot appeal to any other authority. Some will say, well, wait a minute, that seems kind of like circular reasoning. I'm going to prove this Bible by the Bible. Well, that's convenient. This is the kickback people will give you in the world today. Guys, don't let that intimidate you. Think about it for a second. Put on your critical thinking caps. So what are they going to do? To prove their authority source. Oh, they're going to use circular reasoning. Everybody uses circular reasoning because you ultimately come back to the authoritative source that they're claiming is the authoritative source. If I'm going to use science as my authoritative source, whoo, there's some <laughs> Holy Ghost power, huh? I'm just kidding. <laughs> sorry. That's, that's right. That's right. Yeah. I'm sure there's a scientific answer on that. But if I'm going to use science as my authoritative source, to prove it's my authoritative source, that's circular reasoning. Everybody does this. So don't let this be a deterrent as to why you should or shouldn't appeal to Scripture. You're going to use philosophy as your end-all, back-all, foundation of all. You're going to use philosophy. Or you're going to eventually bring it back to, that's why philosophy is the... It's all circular reasoning. So don't let that deter you or concern you. Everyone uses circular reasoning. Listen to Bodhi as he is the quote that's, that's shared there on the screen. He says, uh, Some immediately scoffed at the notion, thinking that you can't successfully use the Bible to prove the Bible. They will write it off as circular reasoning. But understand, my goal is not to prove the Bible. My goal is to answer the question of why I choose to believe it. And the answer to that question lies in the Bible itself. So I can't, I can't prove this without 
appealing to its claims because it's the one making the claims, right? So I appeal to the Scriptures as the authoritative base. But I'm going to give you evidence as to why it is the authoritative base. Let's continue. Let's begin by looking at Scripture. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. I've got it on the screen. If you want to go to 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21, this will be where we'll start uh, today. 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. So you've got the Apostle Peter writing here. And notice right out of the, out of the gate, Peter's got no doubt as to what he believes about Scripture. Notice what he says. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. Hey, by the way, that's an assault coming at the church today. There's a new genre, mytho-history. First 11 chapters are myth, and then it transitions all of a sudden for some reason, and everybody is historically accurate, and everything is good to go from 12 forward. This is real, and there's some brilliant minds putting this kind of argument forward. Peter didn't hold to such a view, which by the way, Peter quotes in the, the Genesis account, as does Paul, as does Jesus. That's a whole other... Show up for Carver's class. You'll learn more about that stuff. But we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. What's Peter saying? He said, I was there, dude. I heard it. I saw it. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. Remember the transfiguration? There's a miracle. Eyewitness accounts. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's a claim, guys. That's a truth claim. And you need to answer that question. Is that truth claim or is that not a truth claim? But yet we are seemingly embracing within the church and the body of Christ today other ideas. And we'll show you a few of those faulty ideas in a little bit. And hopefully help you understand why that is not a foundation to build your house on. So to understand this, we need to understand the idea of inspiration. Okay, so I want to I help us unpack inspiration. The idea of inspiration, you'll see this in the Scripture, and we're going to show the passage here in just a second, but it comes from this Greek word, pheromeno. It literally means to carry, to bear, to guide, or to drive along. This word we see also used in, in the book of Acts. In 2717, it's used of a ship being carried by the wind. The sails, the wind fills the sails and carries the ship along. Okay, we just read in that Peter passage that men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They were moved. It's God-breathed, as we're going to see in just a little bit when we think of this idea of inspiration. It comes from 2 Timothy 3.16. Let me go back. It says, all Scripture, uh, just some of this, Oh, Genesis 12 and forward. That's when it begins, I guess. No, God. All Scripture. All Scripture. Now, when this is being written, the Old Testament is in mind, right? This collection of, of Old Testament work has been embraced. It's, it's, it's been received. There's no question as to what those, those books are. Genesis being one of those. First five books, the Torah written by 
Moses, which great answer today on that uh, subject matter of um, a lot of these new claims are saying we find these writings were written prior to Moses writing Genesis. All these flood claims and differing stories and myths, all these myths that were written, we're finding this mytho uh, history language in other places of the world. Guys, you do realize Moses didn't write that revelation until a lot later. He wasn't there at the beginning of time. He, he writes those first five books as the Spirit of God moved him like wind in a sail to inspire him to write down the very authoritative words of God to give an account to the historical accuracy. So of course there's these writings all over the world of a flood that are way off base because they need to fit that narrative to their story. Just like is what's happening today with people taking and trying to write a narrative to fit their story in modern science, in modern philosophy. We've got to somehow eisegesis. That means I'm going to fit what's going on in the world today into the Bible. Instead of exegesis, the way we should study is actually work from the Scripture to the world around us. That's why a biblical worldview is so important. I need to look to the world to see the world the way it really is. Looking from the mind of Christ, from the authoritative Word of God to the world around me. That's the only way I'm going to see it clearly. But if I try to go to the Scriptures and say, well, wait a minute. How does, how does this idea of, of, of the different races fit? Inequality, and, and so I'm trying to, to try to fit the narrative. Well, the world's telling me this, and the science is telling me that. I've got to make that fit. I've got to make that fit, or I'm going to look like an idiot. And there's a fear of man over the fear of God, and that's really what's at the heart. That's what's at the heart of all this crap. Excuse that language. I'm getting a little passionate. Got carried away there for a moment. But to quote. Paul, it, it, it is dumb. All scripture is God, it, it, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's an authoritative statement, thus saith the Lord. So what about inspiration? What is inspiration? Many are asking, what is inspiration? inspiration? (laughs) With such enthusiasm, too, I heard it. Thank you. What is inspiration? I'm glad you asked. It comes from the word, two words actually, theo and neustis, and it means literally God breathed. It's God breathed. Isn't it cool when you think about when when God formed man from the dust of the ground, he breathed life into his nostrils. Isn't it cool when you think about, guys, that it's through the Word of God, through the Holy Spirit that, that breathes life into you, you can be born again. Isn't it cool to think about that the Word of, of life, it's, a, it's the living Word. The Word of God. I'm going to give you some key terms because this is important to understand. Which, by the way, uh, this comes from a, a study by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Um, some great resources here on this subject. And so I'm utilizing their slides and presentations, so I want to make that known. Key terms. Revelation. This is important. The act whereby God reveals truth to mankind through both special revelation... That's scripture, prophets, etc., and general revelation, natural conscience. You've been coming to my Wednesday night Bible study. We've been talking about this. God makes himself known two ways. General revelation, you look at the world around you, you see creation, you know there's a creator. That's called general revelation. Some may call it natural revelation. Synonymous terms, doesn't really matter. But general revelation. He also has made himself known through what's called special revelation. That's through the prophets of old. That's through the apostles. That's through the scriptures that we now have. And that canon is closed. That's a whole other sermon another day. But that's a great study as well as to why we know beyond a shadow of a doubt these 66 books are indeed the canon that God desired for us to have. And I promise you it wasn't because somebody chose a yellow bead and a red bead at a big group meeting. 
But that's the kind of lies you'll get fed at, at the universities. Crying out loud. Revelation. That's what happened. God makes himself generally known, and he's also made himself known through special revelation. Then there's what's called inspiration. That's what we've been talking about. This is the act whereby God guided the writers of Scripture, giving them His words while fully utilizing the human element within man to produce the Scripture. Simply put, He used man and his personalities. That's why when you read the letters, they read different, they write different. There's different genres that are used. We don't deny that. That is absolutely correct. There's poetic. There's apocalyptic, there's Hebrew narratives, there's different ways. And when you read, you need to understand that when you're reading it. You don't read, you know, the, the uh, stock market pages the same way you read the sports pages, right? Or the comic strip. I mean, there's different types of reading that you, that you implement when you're reading these things to properly interpret and understand them. But here's the most important aspect of that reading for us today. Illumination. The act whereby God enlightens people to understand His revelation and its relevance to their lives. There may be many applications when you're reading a text, but guys, there's only one interpretation. And see, we have a problem today that's the same problem in the beginning of time when Satan whispered, oh, did God really say? Did He mean you will surely die in the day that you eat? He's trying to get you to question the interpretation of God's Word. And we still have that whisper happening today in the church. I, you know, God didn't really mean, and this is true, this is a true story. This is what the liberals will teach you in the universities, okay? God didn't really mean that he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because of homosexuality, the sin of, of, of homosexuality. He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because of the, the sin of, of neglecting hospitality. That is their actual teaching. They, they believed that it was destroyed because of a lack of hospitality. Oh, my soul. But you see, they have to reinterpret the Scripture in order to fit their paradigm, to fit their life. And that's the problem, guys. You and I are not to make God's Word fit our life. We need to submit under the authority of thus saith the Lord. And especially as followers of Christ, Boy, you about got wet on that one. You saw that? It's a good thing I didn't have much distance today. I give towels with my showers, by the way. Thank you, sir. But guys, this is the kind of stuff that, that, that's happening in Christianity. And we wonder why there's no power in the church, why we're weak in our walk. Because we don't actually believe that the Bible's authoritative. Oh yeah, it's fine when it comes to, you know, praying that prayer to help with my, my illness. Or, hey, I'll even trust God with my soul for all eternity. But I don't know if I can trust Him when it comes to, you know, understanding that Genesis account. That, or, or a man being swallowed by a fish. And three, that just seems a little crazy. I, I, I better back off of that one. Guys, come on. Illumination is when the Holy Spirit enlightens us to understand and rightly divide the word of truth, which we need to study to show ourselves approved so we can do that. We'll talk a little bit more because there's another term used that uses the same word that, that's not the same in meaning. But just know this, revelation comes, general revelation. Uh, we have an account in, in, in Acts 10 where Cornelius is a righteous man. He sees the natural things of God, that general revelation, and, and his, his heart is drawn to God by the love of God to want to know God. That's why God gives Peter a missionary assignment, one of the first missionary assignments. Hey, there's a guy over here I want you to go take Christ to. I want you to take him the gospel. And he comes in and Cornelius is saved and his whole household is saved. And this is the same thing that happens today. Other parts of the world where nobody's ever, never, ever heard of Jesus. Well, I promise you, if they're responding to the natural revelation that God has given them, God will provide the means for salvation because God is faithful. And those whom he calls, he predestinates, they will come to Him. He will send someone to them to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. He will not leave them undone if they're responding to that which has been given. But you know what happens, and this is a poor illustration, but it's the best I got right now on the spot. It, 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 what happens too often times is, is, hey, here's three bucks because I know you're struggling. you got a $400 debt. Here's three bucks. Now what you didn't know was I just actually gave you three bucks and I only had four. 
and you think to yourself, self, precious, stubborn, whatever your name is, $3, that ain't going to do nothing. That ain't going to do squat. I'm not very responsive to that. I'm not appreciative of that, right? I don't act on that. Meanwhile, I just got $100 extra in the mail. Oh, no, let's just say I just got $1,000 in the mail. You know what? I knew their debt was $400. They've just given me this stinky attitude. Am I probably going to respond? To that hardness? To that? No. Of course not. But what if I give them that $3 and there's this response? Thankfulness, gratitude, a looking to, appreciation to. I'm more likely to give them and meet that, right? And I know it's a terrible illustration. Don't probably just lose that one on the way home. But my point is this, that... If you respond to the grace that God's given you, and He's given all men the grace of nature. He's given all men the ability to look at the stars at night and see that there's a Creator. If you'll respond to that drawing that God has provided through His grace and mercy, you're more likely to receive Christ. But what happens is man tramples it underfoot, and we love darkness rather than light, and so we don't really appreciate the $3 we got. We don't appreciate the general revelation that's been given to us. We don't act on it. Instead, we worship it. We just, you know, it's, it's a mess. Like I said, lose that illustration on the way home. We'll rethink it. All right, inspiration. The act whereby God guided the writers of Scripture, giving them His words while fully utilizing the human element within man to produce the Scripture. Y'all understand, this is a supernatural, God-breathing happening. God moved on man to write these things. But how did he do it? Now, here's, the, here's where we're going to explore some fallacies. There are some people out there, even under the Christian umbrella, that teach these foolish ideas. Natural inspiration. And natural inspiration says this. It's the belief that certain people were extremely gifted and that through their natural God-given abilities to write Scripture. So it's 100% on man. That is the natural inspiration interpretation. There are people who teach that. That is not. Right. Illumination, and again, this is not the same as the definition of a while ago. This is under the, uh, uh, the idea of inspiration, and they say it this way. It's belief that the Holy Spirit moved within certain individuals to write above their natural capacity. 90% man, 10% God. That, that's that extra 10% that gave Pastor Mark the ability to jump and spike the bow over the net. That, that would be kind of that. So we know that ain't happening. Just, I love you, buddy. That was a good video, though. That was one of your highlight videos, i got to say. Yeah, I did like that. That's right. Were there eyewitnesses? Oh, maybe there was. All right. We can see. We can verify that claim as not being true. <laughs> he was on the chair. All right. Then there's this other idea of inspiration. It's called partial inspiration. It's the belief that some Scripture is inspired, namely that which is profitable for doctrine, matters of faith and practice, but not all is inspired. Matters of history and science, they're not included because they're really irrelevant to God's purpose. That's 50% man, 50% God. That's also a faulty worldview. But this is where a lot of Christians feel like they have to go. Why do they feel compelled to go there? It's because they're listening to the whispers. Did God really mean it that way? And they're, they're fearful of man more than they are fearful of God. They can't trust God. They can trust God with their eternity, but they can't trust God on this? Come on. Then there's what's called degree inspiration. Degree inspiration is belief that all Scripture is inspired, but some passages are more inspired than others. The days of creation narrative, for example, was written in accommodating language, a, a sort of baby talk. Mytho-history, maybe, I don't know. Uh, but was nonetheless inspired. That's 90% God, 10% man. 10% man. That's called the degree inspiration. And then there's what's called mechanical dictation. And mechanical dictation says God simply used the hand of man to passively write His words. Whoa, what did I just write? Whoa. 
Sorry, I know. We got to get some visuals, right? Mechanical dictation. Mm, I must write scripture. Sorry. Here's the one you need to listen to. Verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal plenary. All scripture is inspired by God to utilize the human element within man to accomplish this without error. This is 100% man and 100% God. You need to understand right from our own CBC doctrinal statement, which Lord willing will be presenting the revised updated before the end of the year, but this will not change, I promise you. Um, here's what our Constitution reads, and this is important because again, we need to understand who we are and our identity. This is what we believe when it comes to inspiration as this church stands. The Bible is the Word of God, period. I love that, that that was put in there. The Bible is the Word, that's the first line. The Bible is the Word of God, period. That's a great place to start. Then it says, we believe the verbal plenary inspiration of the Scriptures. You see, we're, we're making known who we are, guys. And so if you come in and become a part of the church as a member, we're thankful for that. But you don't need to bring a degree, partial, mechanical view of inspiration. Now, you're free to hold to that if that's what you believe, but that's not what we believe. And so to try and encroach and teach anything contrary to that would be shame on you, right? That's just a polite way of saying it. Shame on you. It's like me going over to Barnett's house and Barnett says, come on in. And uh, he's, oh, we need you to take your shoes off. And I say, oh, okay, not a problem. I have no problem with that. And I take my shoes off. And I start walking around and start to make myself at home feel a little comfortable in this recliner chair. And then I say, you know what? I'm going to put my shoes back on because that's just sort of, I don't believe that. I think I ought to be able to wear my shoes in this house. And that's my prerogative. So I put my shoes on. And I start, you know, stomping around the house at Barnett's. That ain't going to last long. These boys are big. I'm probably going to be out the door real quick. Yeah, they're nice. They're, they're general guys. But they would politely, you know. Anyway. Um, the point is, guys, this is important. Identity in churches is important. It's important for order. It's important for understanding. It's important for us to be on the same page. And again, you don't have to agree to this. I don't have to like the rule at the house. But you know what I have to do when I'm there? Honor that, respect that, appreciate that. There's nothing wrong with that. That's harmony. That's unity. That's a good thing. We believe the verbal plenary inspiration of the Scriptures. That is, quote, the Bible is fully and equally inspired of God in the original writings, even to the words used. The styles of the various writers were preserved. It is the final authority of faith and life. That's our statement. That's who we are. And we don't apologize for that. That is what we believe. We believe that is what the Scriptures teach. We believe that God chose men and their personalities and their quirks and their failures, and yet He moved them, inspired them to pen His exact words. And He's preserved that truth. And that's a whole other subject too, preservation. But inspiration. So when it comes to the Scriptures, it's 100% human involvement, 100% God at work in writing the authoritative word. It is His word. I hope that's clear. If it's not clear, come talk to me, please. Um, 2 Peter, again, we saw this. It says, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's what the Scripture is, guys. The voice of God. It's the Word of God. And it's authoritative to all areas of our life. So what makes you believe that the Scriptures are inspired? I won't amuse myself this time. Uh, so let's, let's look at proving inspiration. Because again, it's easy to make those claims, but how do we back those truth claims? Let's do the math now. It's time to do the math. Here's some questions we need to, we need to wrestle through. How does the Bible authenticate itself? So if you're going to use the Bible for this circular reasoning, you're going to use the Bible to prove the Bible, how does it authenticate itself? 
We need to answer that. What evidence is there that the Bible is inspired? Do you got some proof of that? Do you got some evidence of that? We want to we learn these things. We want to think through these things. This is important, guys, to your faith. Is there any evidence for the historicity of the Bible outside of Scripture? Okay. Again, we don't mind using uh, all, all the knives in the drawer, right? I mean, you know, if I'm going to butter my bread, I'm probably going to use a butter knife. I'm going to cut the steak, I'm going to pull out a steak knife, right? Nothing wrong with that. So, so we're, we're okay to entertain some of these ideas. By the way, this is getting into a divide, what we call in, in apologetics, we call classical apologetics, and we call presuppositionless apologetics. We are presuppositionless. When I say we, myself, Pastor Mark, Pastor Dean, presuppositional apologetics. What does that mean? Take your Bibles and let's go over to Romans 1. Romans 1, because it's important to understand this, and we're going to have to close it out and pick up another day. But let's get to a good stopping point. Romans 1. Romans chapter 1, and let's look in verse 18. Now again, remember, God speaking through the Apostle Paul. He's written down these words. It's the Word of God. You want to know what God thinks about these things? Here's what He says. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Here's the phrase. Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, conscience, for God has shown it to them, for since the creation of the world, Paul believed in the creation account, from the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen. Not only are they seen, guys, keep reading, being understood. They understand it. They know it. Don't let them lie to you. They're lying. They may be self-deceived. They don't know they're lying. I'll give them that. They may be operating in the dark because, by the way, they're blind. So, yeah. But God says not only do they clearly see when it comes to the natural revelation, they also understand it. The things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. Verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful. There's that illustration. Maybe it's coming together a little better. But became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and corruptible things. Guys, every man born on this planet knows there's a God. But they resist that knowledge. They suppress it. Because man loves darkness rather than light. We are presuppositionalists. That means we presuppose every man knows there's a God. When the Bible starts, how does the Bible start? Let me prove myself. Is that what God says? No, no. He says, in the beginning, God. It's declarative. The Bible never seeks to try and prove the existence of God. It declares God. And that's why I'm a presuppositionalist, because this passage tells me you know there's a God. It's already written on your heart and in your conscience. You look at the world around you. You choose to suppress that knowledge in unrighteousness. You don't want to submit to it because you know if you have to submit to it, you're having to yield your life to a holy, higher power God, and that means you're going to give an answer one day for your sins. That's the truth. Don't take my word for it. Read Thessalonians where it talks about that um, they, they suppress the truth. It talks about they, they will be damned. They will be damned because they took pleasure in unrighteousness. They did not receive the love of the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. They did not receive the love of the truth because they had pleasure in unrighteousness. Guys, men love darkness rather than light. They're not going to come to the light unless the glorious light of the gospel should penetrate their blinders and draw them. 
the Bible is authoritative. We're going to continue to unpack this. We're going to continue to look at how we can prove evidences for the Bible's inspiration. That's going to be looking at hopefully next week. Um, but I want you to know this as you go. Let me, let me close with this quote because I think this is a good, good way to kind of close out today. Turn in your Bibles to this verse first. Luke 16. Luke 16. And listen to verse 31. Luke 16, verse 31. Sorry, did I get that wrong? I wrote that wrong, didn't I? Nope. Here we go. Here it is. Thank you. Verse 31. But he said to him, they do not hear Moses and the prophets. Neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. If they're not going to listen to the Word of God, they're not going to believe, even if one rose from the dead. By the way, one did rise from the dead. His name's Jesus Christ. And they rejected Him. And a lot of these folks in the world are scoffers. They're not honest seekers. Now there are skeptics who are honest seekers and we need to reach them with the truth of the gospel. We've got to come to the understanding, guys, that God's word is authoritative truth. Let me read this and we'll be done. Finally, we need to recognize that the authors of Scripture claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. Peter writes, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by any human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Paul said all Scriptures breathed out by God. Over and over the testimony of the Bible, thus saith the Lord, the Lord spoke to Moses, He spoke to Daniel, He spoke to Isaiah, He spoke to Jeremiah, and through the Holy Spirit He spoke to the apostles. Scripture is the record of what He said to them. And through them, to us, they consistently point back to Him as the author of the Bible. In an effort to avoid Scripture's divine authorship, some people will attempt the seemingly clever gambit of claiming they need scientific proof if they're going to believe the Bible is God's Word. While the man of science, Dodge, might make some feel intellectual, it really only demonstrates their ignorance. They fail to understand that the scientific method they profess to revere only applies to events that are observable, measurable, and repeatable. History is none of those things. So saying you require scientific evidence to believe historical events only shows that a person doesn't know what he or she's talking about. You don't use the scientific method to prove historical facts. You use the evidentiary method like you would in a courtroom. You ask about the reliability of the sources. They can be corroborated. You ask about the internal and external evidence that supports the sources. You ask about the quality of the witnesses. Were they trustworthy? And could their statements have been falsified? What is there that can contradict or confirm those statements? Those are the kinds of questions you ask in the evidentiary method. And when you ask those questions, you come away with things like three continents, three languages. Over 40 authors, most of them who never met one another. They wrote 66 volumes, addressing hundreds of different subjects and topics, yet coming together in a cohesive unit that tells one redemptive story. Although it was written over a period of more than 1,500 years, you have the corroboration of 25,000 archaeological digs related directly to matters discussed in the Bible that have only further confirmed the accuracy of the biblical record. And you have the writings of contemporaries that further confirm the details therein. Looking at the enormous body of evidence, only a fool would say, I simply can't believe the Bible is true. Guys, you have the Word of God. And it needs to be authoritative in every area of our life. Politics, sexuality, family, 
life. Let God's word have its way in us. And may we begin to see the world around us the way God intended for you and I to see it. In His wisdom and His authority. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We're just beginning to scratch the surface. And it's an inexhaustible well. The deeper we, we dig in that well, the sweeter, the sweeter the water is. Lord, let us do so. My prayer is for every listener here today that we'll examine our own worldviews. What areas of our own worldview have we been taken captive by the vain philosophies of this world? In what areas of our life have we been led astray? Uh, those seemingly good ideas are nothing more than watered-down compromises. Holy Spirit, give us your conviction. Help us not grieve or quench the Spirit of God, but may we submit our lives in full surrender to thus saith the Lord, that we'll honor you and glorify you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. Uh, look forward to seeing you. Championship game uh, Monday night for volleyball. Uh, CBC came up a little short. We finished third this year. It was a great season. Uh, but if you want to come out and see that, that'll be Monday. Also, our discipleship group. Uh, if you're in our discipleship group, you'll be getting a text today. Uh, we're trying to get together for our final meeting. And so we'll send that out. Uh, also, Wednesday night, don't forget, club. Any other announcements need to be covered as we head out? You're dismissed. Have a blessed day.